let's turn to uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. If you're there, you stand as we pay honor to the reading of God's word tonight. Titled tonight's sermon, Look to the Book. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Let's listen to God's word. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This has been the reading of God's word. We praise him for keeping it for us. Let's pray together this evening. Father, we come before you tonight. Thankful that we've already been able to worship you through the singing of songs and be able to, to approach you through prayer, thinking of our brothers and sisters around the globe who have left everything that they know to go and serve you. And Father, I pray for us that we might be inspired and encouraged by their um, testimony and their witness, that they would be willing to go thousands of miles around this globe to serve you. We could look for areas within our own city, within our own church, where we might be able to serve you. Father, we're thankful that we get to read your word together this evening. We're thankful that we get to consider what it means and seek to apply it to our lives. We also know that we're not the only people that have a Bible. We also know that we're not the only people who know you in our city. And we think of just fellow uh, brothers and sisters around the city who are uh, striving to make much of Jesus. And we want to pray for them. We think of Second Baptist Church here in Springfield as they're searching for a new pastor. We ask that you would lead and direct and bring the right man to pastor that church that might be able to lead them to live for you. We're thankful for the testimony and the ministry of Dr. John Marshall there for so many years. We just ask that you would watch over that congregation and raise up a pastor for them. We also are thankful tonight and pray for uh, the Graceway Baptist Church here in, in Springfield. Think of Bob Stevenson and Tyler Shores and Kyle Gangle and Von Waller and Zach Peel and all the different staff brothers that are there at that church and that congregation as they faithfully labor for the gospel. We ask that you would allow their uh, ministry to increase and grow and that we might be co-laborers seeking to reach people all over the city for your fame and your name. Father, now as we turn our attention to your word, may our hearts be receptive. May our eyes and ears tune to it so that we might grow more to love you and might grow more in your image. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. You know, we live in an interesting era of history. Uh, kind of a shift has taken place in the last 100 years that direct and guide how we live and how we operate. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that the leading minds and thinkers of our day uh, were pastors. They were people who sat in the public square, would give opinion on uh, legislation of the day. They were well-read, they were well-thought-of, they were well-respected inside their community. They were the people who you assumed you would go to if you needed some sort of advice or counsel. In the last hundred years, we've, we have uh, shifted who we uh, look to and who we 
assume will have the right answers for us. Uh, you know, pastors were that in a bygone era for a long time, probably, arguably, depending on how you understand history. Politicians up until the era of Nixon and Watergate were thought to be people that were respected, honored, should be followed. And ever since that particular incident, inside of our own history, kind of our shift towards politicians has kind of changed how we understand them to be. It's interesting because in our day, in our era, instead of going to pastors for help, we turn to psychologists and self-help uh, gurus and uh, an interesting uh, uh, term for an industry, life coaches, whatever that means to have a life coach. Um, I think it's just people who suckered you into thinking you need someone to coach you through life and uh, you're paying them an, an inordinate amount of money to help have them help you get to the, whatever the next stage in life is. Our culture at large really seems to suggest that the people who you and I should look to or the sources that we should turn to uh, to get wisdom, to know how to live, would be athletes, actors, musicians. And a new term has kind of popped onto the scene in the last 25 years where we understand people to be influencers. This is a really vague term. It's someone who's figured out how to turn an Instagram account into a money-making operation and influence culture. Uh, this would be a foreign concept even 20 years ago to think about having a social media influencer. Uh, we see this all over our culture at large. There are so many voices clamoring to tell you who to listen to and who to go to for advice. And I think that by turning our attention back to a very familiar passage of Scripture, we might be reminded again tonight where we need to look. Because I'm fearful. And not in like a woe is me, Armageddon is coming, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, or whoever the next president is, is the Antichrist type of fearful. I, I'm talking about this idea of being fearful that as an era of Christians and as one era goes off the scene and another one comes on, mainly our generation of Christians, that we would be far too easily tempted to look to other things other than God's word for how we should live our lives. And so tonight what I want us to do is to consider again what it might look like for us as a college ministry and you as an individual to look to the book. Historically, Southern Baptists specifically, and evangelical Christians larger than just Southern Baptists, have been people of the book, meaning that there are people who are fiercely committed to Scripture at a deep and intentional level. So tonight I want to take us back to our roots in an era where there's so much pushing aside of Scripture in favor of my personal experience or what I would like or what I would prefer. Christians need to return to being people who look to the book. So three things tonight from this particular text 
I don't know that I would consider them answers necessarily to, to the question of why should we look to the book. But I think there are three principles that garner or guide our way as we think about what it means to be people who look to the book. First, I think we need to consider the source. I want you to look at verse 16 there. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It, this particular first phrase of 2 Timothy 3.16 is probably one of the most important phrases in all of the Bible. I remember being in Bible college and writing, you know, you get there and you, you go through some of the, your gen ed classes and then you finally get to classes that you actually care about. Um, and I remember getting to our first theology class and I was assigned this particular text to write my first ever theological paper on in Bible college. And that was now almost nine years ago. And I still keep coming back to this particular text because that phrase, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is so fundamental to what you and I should believe about what it means to be a Christian. What we believe about God's word, which directs the path which we walk, what we're saying is it's given to us by God himself. Some of you use translations that say it is God breathed. That's probably a better translation of the Greek word that is there, that it is God breathed. He's literally breathing it out through human authors. He's communicating over 40 authors, over 4,000 years. He's going to give to us his word for how we should live. It's literally God breathed. It's not merely inspired and in a world that thinks of being inspired as being somebody who watches a B'nai Brown Netflix special or a minimalism type approach to life on Netflix, which is just ironic now that we've gone to the era of self-help via Netflix. And I mean, like you're considered almost an outsider if you've not watched those things. And I'm just going to be really honest with you. Anybody who tells you in your life that you need to trim down your books to just 30 is someone you shouldn't ever listen to. Uh, they are not, they don't know what they're talking about. This idea of if you get rid of all of this clutter, it will make you happy. I, I don't think that that's necessarily true because for each and every one of us, for a lot of us, getting rid of clutter just means an opportunity to buy more things. We're inspired. We live in the era of being inspired. I want to be inspired. I come to church to be inspired. And so when we come to this, like all scripture is inspired by God, we don't want to think of it as merely being this kind of all scripture is designed to make me feel good about life. Because then we'll be tempted to do what Thomas Jefferson did with the Bible, and that's to go through it with a pen knife, cutting out the parts we don't like. And Augustine, a famous dead theologian, said, if you only worship the parts of God that you like and not the parts of God that you don't like, in the end, it's not God that you worship, but yourself. This isn't some word that's designed to make us feel better about who we are. 
In fact, it does primarily the opposite. Tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ, the Bible is going to tell you that you're a sinner in need of being saved. And that the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross is the only thing that can rescue you from your sinful condition. That's why we need to be reminded that all scripture is given by inspiration of God as God breathes. He's speaking to us. And he's telling us how we should live if we desire to live a life that honors him. And this is what makes the Bible so much different from any other holy book. Because it's not, the Bible is not some holy book that is given by some weird vision to just one man. And he's kind of self-authenticating his own version of what God has told him to do. And Lord willing, we'll dive into that more this fall. We try to tackle and look at cults and world religions in the fall. We'll explore that in depth of what it means for other so-called self-proclaimed holy books to say, no, we have God's word. Or we have an addendum, an addition to God's word. The Bible doesn't operate this way. In fact, the Bible goes about... It's own self-authenticating witness, if we will, in a way that no one would suggest you should do it. Let's get 40 different authors. Let's space them out over 4,000 years. So some of them are dead when others are writing. Some of them are alive when others are writing. And we'll create a cohesive storyline. If you want to understand how awe-inspiring this should be for us that the Bible cohesively comes together. Consider how many comic books have failed as they've changed different authors through the years and had to reboot because somebody's drifting the story a certain way that's not consistent. We don't even like it when directors take leave of absence. You think of the arguments that Peter Jackson destroyed the Lord of the Rings trilogy in the way that he directed uh, the Lord of the Rings because he took creative licenses in places and misrepresented what's in the books. And some of you are like, I don't really care. I just went to see the movies. What are books? And friends, go and read the books. Trust me, Tolkien's far better in print than he is in movies. Understand how we should walk away, and this is where I want to stop and pause and ask you this question. This is the book that you're supposed to meditate day in and day out on. Deuteronomy 6 says that we're supposed to hide it in our hearts. We, we think of just the, our, the sensationalism at times of personal devotions where we all feel bad because we're not getting where we want to be. But I, I, I'm fearful tonight. Maybe part of the reason why we're not driven as much to read God's word as we should be as Christians is because we've forgotten who's actually written and given it to us. It's not the user guide to your TV or the user manual for your car 
that the only time you pull it out is when there's a blinking light on your dashboard that you don't really understand. You're not really sure how those squiggly lines going two directions are supposed to communicate some sort of hazardous condition. But that's far too often how Christians treat their Bibles, as if the only time they need to be pulled out is when they're in the middle of a crisis. So have you considered tonight how the Bible is given to us with a different level of authority because it's God-breathed? And, and I'm just curious tonight, as you maybe need to be encouraged to continue to grow and study in God's word, that you might be encouraged by the fact that you can have greater confidence that this book is going to tell you how you should live rightly because it's given to you by God. So we want to consider the source. Then second of all, we want to consume it all. We're going to be people who look to the book. We have to be people who consume it all. Two words really at the beginning of verse 16 key this in for us. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That all scripture, all of the word is given to us by God. This is weighty. It says that we don't pick and choose the portions that we want to read. That we might from time to time. Because let's be honest, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus is far easier to understand than whatever is going on in Leviticus 21. Or we could really understand probably Acts, and those are some odd things that happen in that book. It's far easier to wrap our brains around that than who Solomon's talking to in Song of Solomon. And should I even be reading this book? What's going on here? This makes no sense. I know that he's talking about his wife, but that like he uses some weird analogies. I think a lot of times we read the parts that are easy for us to understand because life is far easier when it's comfortable. Or the parts of it that really aren't controversial are telling me that I need to change the way that I live. James 1 is great because it tells me to count it all joy when I fall into various temptations, but I don't really like James 3 where it tells me that I need to be careful and guard my tongue because it's like a fire and will consume people. Or it's easier to understand that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then to kind of confront the, the cultural pressure of the day and go to Genesis 1 and go, and he made them in his image, male and female, created he in his image. See, we're tempted far too often to look to the parts that are easier for us to understand. But make no mistake tonight, there's no exceptions to this clause. Like the Apostle Paul doesn't say, Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God except for First and Second Chronicles. Who cares about what those people are in their genealogies? And you're like, 27 chapters of so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so. Then you get to a prayer of Jabez, and then we're back right into uh, more chronology. Like, apparently these people had a lot of babies. 
I got this weird prayer in here that we're not really sure who it applies to. Friends, I think more than ever, we need to be robust Christians who seek to understand all of God's word because you and I are constantly running into people who misinterpret and misapply God's word all the time. And it happens every day on your campus. It happens every day at your work. It happens every day. And one of the easiest illustrations of this is your unsaved friend who, is, who doesn't understand how you can follow Jesus. And every time you try and talk to them about what it means to follow Christ, they say, why would I follow Jesus? You're not even like you can't even follow the Bible. You're not supposed to be wearing mixed fabric clothing. And we kind of shrink away from that because we don't know how to give an answer. Second Peter would say for the hope that lies within us because we're not really robust in studying the Bible. The other primary assault where this is taking place, and some of you may have heard this, I think it's just a good reminder to all of us. There's this rising amount of people who will tell you that they love Jesus and they love the Bible, just only the parts where Jesus is speaking. They call themselves red-letter Christians. Understand that Jesus himself was a whole Bible man when he lived on this earth, and even as the second person of the Trinity, he continues to be a whole Bible man. Jesus told the Pharisees at one point, not one jot nor one tittle will pass away. And if you don't, you're like, that's weird. Like, what is he talking about? He's talking about there's small inscriptions in part of the Hebrew Bible that are referred to as jots and tittles. And Jesus is saying, look, this stuff is so inspired, like not even the smallest minute part of it will go forward until it's all been all of it, every little bit of it. So we can't allow the difficulty or the controversy. We certainly can't buy into the fact that we need to limit our understanding of Scripture. I think this has become prominent and prevalent again with um, just the idea that you don't really need the Old Testament. And there's been a lot of debate and a lot of chatter about this idea. And I think just to sum it all up and to try to be charitable to all people involved, Timothy is not given an opt-out clause here to just teach his people some of it. Which I just want to ask you tonight, what strategies are you using to actually consume it all? Are you reading a wide range of scripture? And are there portions tonight that you're avoiding because it's difficult? Look, I get it. I've been in school for far too long. You can ask Jessica. She can confirm that I've been in school for far too long. And probably to some it seems excessive to spend this much time studying the Bible and theology. I can't get enough of it. I just want to know it. But I can honestly confess that there have been times and seasons in my life where I'm like, in my Bible reading plan, we're supposed to be in like Leviticus or uh, the chronology and numbers. Or there's some weird stuff going on <laughs> in all kinds of different books. And I'm just like, uh, let's read a little bit of Paul. Hey, those general letters, 
that Peter writes, even 3 John, let's just go there. That's easier to understand than what's going on here. We can't be Christians who duck and dodge different pieces of the Bible because we don't understand. It's all one cohesive book that is coming together from Genesis to Revelation to talk about how God created man in his image and that image was distorted and broken by the fall of man in Genesis 3. And from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, all of scripture is speaking to how God is desiring to restore that broken relationship with humanity and bring all things into perfect order. So we can't afford to skip parts because they're hard to understand. Last of all, we said we need to consider the source. We said we need to consume it all. But then this is one where Christians really need to put the pedal to the metal, and that is to continue to grow. So Paul unpacks in that first phrase kind of the rock-solid foundation of what Scripture is, and then he turns the corner in the back half of 16 and 17 and tells us what it's useful for. It, and he says, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And he gives and lays out four different things that the Bible is useful or profitable for. And he starts with doctrine, or we could say, some of your translations say teaching. It is imperative, Timothy, that you understand as a pastor that you must train your people in godliness. And that godliness comes from right teaching or right doctrine. How we know what we believe and why we believe it. And I grew up in an interesting portion of Baptist life referred to, and I've told you some times, what's commonly referred to as independent fundamental Baptist, which I understand as being light on fun and being very mental. Um, it was not always easy to grow up in that movement, especially when you're kid one in a family. And I think, honestly, I came to know Christ at the age of five, and I think God was even beginning to prepare my heart to be a learner of his word and a pastor someday as I continued to grow up. And it's not easy growing up in an environment that stifles asking why we actually believe something and being the kid who's constantly, but why? Well, the Lord, I hope, will be patient and kind and reward my Sunday school teachers. And, yeah, just my elementary Sunday school teachers, those poor people were just, they didn't know what was happening. Um, I was a nerd. I didn't understand why these things meant what they meant. And here's the deal, too. I grew up in, like, what is commonly referred to as a King James-only movement. There's nothing wrong with the King James Version of the Bible. If you use that Bible, praise God, it's helped a lot of people grow. But when you begin to say that only one version of the Bible can be used to help people grow, you're doing something that even Paul would call wrong. Because just so we're all on the same page, when we talk about the inspiration of God's Word, the original manuscripts, the Greek, Hebrew, and a few Aramaic manuscripts that are what we understand the Bible to be or what is inspired. No translation is inspired. 
Only the original autographs are. And when you move from another language to another language, those of you who do any type of linguistic work in, in your schooling or have studied another language know this to be true. It's very difficult. So you can only imagine nerd me ages 6 through 10 with a King James Version of the Bible going, I don't understand what this means. I can easily remember sitting in um, Sunday school teaching the story of David and Goliath and trying to be a good reader of the Bible and saying, yes, we know that this story is great, whatever, woohoo, David beats Goliath and he goes on to be king. So what does it mean to my teacher that David knew Bathsheba? Like, what does that mean? And as only Bible teachers can do, begin to stumble and fumble over their words, how... Who wants to be responsible in a highly hyper-conservative environment of being responsible for teaching an eight-year-old boy what sex in the Bible looks like and adultery looks like? Nobody does. So you say, David, why are you telling that story? Because I grew up in an environment that was very much anti knowing why we believed what we believed. Just believe it, shut up, don't ask questions. I want to encourage you tonight that if you're the person who's sitting in here and Christianity doesn't make a whole lot of sense or you're new to what it means to follow Jesus Christ or even you've been around here for a long time and you don't understand what the Bible's saying, we're not going to tell you to just shut up, sit there, and listen. We want you to investigate, study, and learn. So what's imperative for that to take place is that the pastors teach and preach doctrine and what the Bible's actually teaching. So, so he says it's profitable for doctrine or for teaching. And then he says for reproof, or we could say this is rebuking type language that Paul is using here. We could divide these four words into two different categories. The first two words being inward action and the second two words being outward action. Doctrine and teaching how I know what I know and how I believe what I believe. And then rebuking, the scripture is correcting my inward thoughts and attitudes. So when the word rebukes, maybe not what's going on on the outside, but what's going on on the inside, that's what it's being used to, to mold us and shape us and make us into the image of Christ. And I think that's why he immediately moves to the word correction. So scripture is profitable to reprove our inward thoughts and our outward actions. And I think the word order is inspired because I don't know how you can fix the outward action unless you first fix the inward one. There are a lot of people in our culture and society who are trying to do a lot of correcting to what's going on outwardly so that they look like good Christians, but they seem to continue to struggle because there's no inward correction that's going on. Which draws me to kind of be on a Miyagi wax on, wax off kind of hand. You got to wax off or wax in on that new stuff, wax off that old stuff. There you go. That was deep. You guys are like, God, I came tonight, got the Miyagi stuff down. I think there are a lot of us who want 
the Bible to tell us how we should follow Christ. But it's got to do inward action. It's got to do inward action where it does outward action. Um, and and we, we can't figure out why we can't get our lives cleaned up. It's because we're relying on ourselves to do the correcting instead of God's work. We wonder why we can't beat or kill a certain sin. It's because we're not letting the word do the inward killing and the outward killing. We're like the people who show up at church from week to week and they tell us, I'll come to know Christ as soon as I clean my life up. And as Conrad Mobwewe says, the disease is on the inside. You can't clean yourself up on the outside. You've got to clean up the inside first, and only Christ can clean that up. And then he concludes with instruction and in righteousness. Because as Christians, we, we must look to God's word to instruct and form and lead us in how we should live, rather than just trying to figure it out on our own. Or to, to ask our friends how we should live rather than asking God's word what it means. And here's the ultimate goal. So that the man and the woman, the gender neutral word here, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here's the idea. The word is doing so much work on you and continuing to grow you to make you look more like Jesus. You might be more Christ-like. You might love him more. You might desire to live for him more. You desire for his glory and not your own, but only because you're continuing to grow. Because as Timothy is going to do with his church people, we do with ourselves as we begin to look to the word and we show up at church looking to our pastor to teach us the word so that we might continue to grow and be equipped for every good work. Are you continuing to grow? You say that that's a very basic question. It, it should require a basic answer. Yes or no. One of the easiest ways to figure this out is maybe tonight or next week. Or maybe sometime this summer when you're with friends that you're close to and have lived life with you for a long enough time. You might ask them. Do you see me? Have you seen me grow to become more Christ-like in the last six months, in the last month, in the last year? Do you see or are you seeing a constant desire to be changed into Christ's image? Are there things in my life that are inconsistent with what it means to be a Christian who is consumed with growing? I'll leave you with this illustration or this kind of thought that we shared together in our small group. This past Sunday, I'm always impressed as someone who um, struggles with a hate-hate relationship with the gym. I hate the gym, and the gym hates me. Um, to to be in a constant and habitual relationship with it, I just struggle in this area. What always amazes me, though, about people who are really honestly serious about getting fit is their tenacity when it comes to making sure that they're in the gym and the, the tenacity with which they will do whatever it takes to get to the next 
level to hit whatever goal is in front of them. And they'll, they will rethink training programs. They'll talk to people. They'll watch YouTube videos. They'll listen to podcasts to figure out what is it going to take for me to get to the next level. What I find ironic about that is I think a lot of Christians give no cares as to how they're growing spiritually. And they wonder, even some of you are wondering tonight, I don't seem to be growing spiritually. Could it perhaps be that you haven't ramped up the training to get you to the next level spiritually? And you haven't even considered what it might look like to ask God to help you move and grow and become more like him. And we wonder why reading the Bible for three minutes a day, a lack of prayer and desire to be godly doesn't transform us into Christ's image the way that we want and what we're after. Maybe tonight the biggest issue is not that we've forgotten that God's word will help us, it's that we're not even using it at all. It's just a book that gathers dust from Sunday to Sunday or a book that sits in the backseat of my car only to be brought out when it's time to go to church. Maybe for us tonight, our summer goal would be to focus less on what it means to be physically healthy to be spiritually healthy. Remember, Paul says that bodily exercise profits little. It's not that it doesn't profit us at all or that you should stop going to the gym. Not making that suggestion at all. What I am saying is we should be far more concerned with how we're growing spiritually than even our own physical fitness. Let's pray with me.